Welcome back to Rethinking Reality. I'm your host, Erica Heidewald, and this is our fifth episode. Kind of a surprise fifth episode for me even. I had another one already created, but then I watched The Matrix Resurrections tonight, and I absolutely have to talk about it. This is going to be less of a movie review and more of a whoa, the Matrix is real, man, kind of analysis of what it might be saying about, well, rethinking our reality. First and foremost, though, this will be a spoiler-full episode, so if you haven't watched the movie, please watch it first. I'd already been planning to do some episodes about movies, pop culture, that potentially have something to say about rethinking our reality. It is my belief that sometimes sort of these peeks into actual reality, the stuff we're not supposed to see and know, do get reflected in movies. And I have wondered why that is for a long time. But The Matrix, the original, is absolutely the movie that inspired that train of thought the most and that I originally planned to make a podcast episode about. And in an ideal world, I would have made that first. But then I watched Matrix Resurrections and they actually talk about this very idea and I just knew we, ha- we have to get into it. This summer, when I first became convinced that we are living in a simulation and that we are some type of energy source for some kind of other being, like a parasite is the way I've been seeing it, that feeds off of our energy and contains us in a traumatic reality as a type of prison, I was like, oh shit, that sounds a lot like the plot of the Matrix. What does that mean? The first possibility, and probably the one most people would advance first, is you just have an overactive imagination slash some kind of delusion, and you pulled it from movies that you've seen, and that's why you think so. And so I had to examine that as a possibility. And then the other possibility was that Uh, oh shit, maybe just reality is more similar to The Matrix than I thought, and it's just less (laughs) fucking fictional than I thought. Maybe sometimes people do get a kind of glimpse into a different reality or outside of this reality, and they put it into art. Maybe it is intentional to try and spread some kind of message, essentially the movie version of the podcast that I'm making right now. Maybe it's unintentional the way that, you know, the ancient Greeks thought ideas were just floating in the air and then came into your mind. And maybe just these ideas exist in the world because they exist in some reality. And so Sometimes we think of them and people who make movies are like, oh, I should make that into a movie. I don't know. And maybe if this simulation is truly more like the one depicted in The Matrix and it has less free will and more control, maybe whoever runs this construct created this simulation puts in these ideas from the outside reality that sometimes people do see when they're not supposed to, put it set into movies and TV so that it is a way to delegitimize anyone who does 
believe in those things or bring up those ideas. You know, it makes it easy to just say, oh, well, you just watch too many movies. So let's say, and I don't believe this, but let's say like The Matrix 1 is exactly reality. We are actually in 2400 or whatever. And like, it's just exactly that. We're all in pods right now. And you actually like had a full whoop. You woke up in your pod and pulled out all your tubes and everything. And then you tried to tell people in the matrix about it. They would just be like, that's ridiculous. That's literally just the movie, the matrix. You sound extremely silly. Are you okay? So it's possible that's a reason we see these fragments of reality reflected in pop culture. Now, I know a lot of people do see Hollywood as this nameless, faceless behemoth, and so they might tend towards that last theory. Conspiracy theorists in particular often talk about the movie industry kind of like it's the CIA with just covert missions. It's running just a lot more like cohesively attempting to mislead the American people than I believe is actually happening. Like, I love to read stuff on Reddit that I don't know if I agree with and personally I don't feel a need always to decide <laughs> if I agree with something. Like maybe eventually I'll decide if I do but I am under no pressure to do so. And people will look at these sort of like entertainment industry celebrity things as like oh well that's clearly a distraction that is a psyop you know just as these very clear intentional parts of some big plan and where that falls apart for me is it ignores the fact that like well there are real people in Hollywood who like write movies and direct them and how how is this all happen is there like do you think there's a meeting and like everyone's going to it to discover what evil thing they're doing today. Like, I, I need a bit more of an explanation of that justification because I lived in LA for 10 years and I was an actor, I did comedy. I know a lot of people in the industry. And while there is absolutely like some shadowy backdoor deal, like there is, there is that. And it's mostly like, you know, all the Harvey Weinstein stuff, like, yeah. And I had absolutely no idea just how much nepotism was going to be the rule and not the exception. And that really all of the avenues that we think are open to like normal people in the entertainment industry really are not. But still, these are like people who are doing jobs and aren't like trying to create psyops for the American people, you know, like, and there is absolutely a ton of propaganda in Hollywood films and even like bought and paid for by the US military propaganda. But I think we just need to be a little more nuanced with those takes about, you know, how that industry actually works. But here's what is so fucking cool, and you probably are already thinking this because you watched the movie. They address this question in the movie. <laughs> and the answer that this movie does seem to be giving is that last theory. Is that like, yeah, this is on purpose for very nefarious reasons. Um, they're talking about how Neo's life as being the one and everything was turned into a video game. And they say, yeah, they took your life and turned it into something as trivial as a video game. They weaponize every idea. 
So maybe it is true that these glimpses of actual reality are put into movies for that exact reason, to trivialize them, to take away their power as ideas. Which begs the question, of course, well, what are the Matrix movies doing then? I found myself really wondering that this summer as I did make these discoveries and develop these new beliefs and I saw like, wow, um, it seems like the Wachowskis somehow got a view into what is actually happening. Like they have, there are too many things in those movies that I'm now discovering in some way in real life. How did that happen? How did they do that? And I also, I felt like the experience I was having, the, the time I was going through, like this being COVID and just specifically when all of this was happening, it felt like this was an important time. It was happening at that time for a reason. But then I wondered like, well, Clearly the Wachowskis had this experience more than 20 years ago. So do I just feel like this time is special because it's when I am learning these things or is there actually something important about right now? So then when I heard that they were making a fourth Matrix movie and it was gonna come out this year, that just really, it just made me wonder like, okay, so does that mean <laughs> that like, yeah, this time is important for some reason, and they have something new to say now. And I just really wondered, what do the Wachowskis have to say now? I felt like if it's true that they had some kind of experience similar to the experience I had this year, then the things that they would have to say about these topics now would be similar to the things that I experienced and thought about and all that this year and so I was really curious will those be in the movie and I feel like if you have listened to every episode of this podcast and you watch Matrix Resurrections you can probably see that like every fucking thing we've talked about on this podcast was in that movie like I absolutely feel that something real is happening that Lana Wachowski has insight into how why I don't know. And as I talked about in episode three, I don't think there is one objective reality we are all living in. So even if people have insight into some parts of reality that we are not supposed to see or we just don't usually see, everyone still only has one part of reality. So even if Lana Wachowski has some insight into a reality outside of this simulation, it would still only be part of the puzzle. It would be some information, not everything. Of course, it's also important to remember like this is a movie. Some of the stuff in the movie will just be in there to make it a good movie. So let's go through the movie from beginning to end. I actually watched it by myself and it took like four hours because I kept pausing it to write extensive notes uh, on my phone like an absolute weirdo. So the movie starts off with this idea of simulations within simulations and being stuck in our little loops. This, I was already like, oh yeah, baby, you are speaking my language. Because <laughs> being caught in our loops, that is 
that is the thing that made me realize, oh my god, I don't live in actual reality, this is a simulation, is I just started recognizing the loops. I started seeing them, I found myself in them, and I realized that sometimes you think that you are saying your words and having your feelings and this is your experience, but it has been fucking written for you because somebody else has done this before. And if you actually think about it, it doesn't even maybe fit in with how you feel the rest of the time. Probably the other piece of media along with The Matrix that was most influential to me in recognizing that sometimes you see art reflected in your reality and that might be significant is Westworld. And Westworld is all about these little loops because these are robots in a park. And they don't know that they're robots, they don't know that they're not real, but they just do their little loops and they can improvise a little bit within them. But, you know, one day one robot can be playing the madam and she can be saying the words and the next day a different robot can be playing the madam and she can be saying the words and it feels just as real to her as it did to the robot yesterday. But still, you are just caught in your little loops. So to have this movie start off with loops, and they even mention loops, and I feel like for people coming into this who are not looking at, like, what does The Matrix have to say about reality, but are just looking for, like, a cool, fun action movie, they might not like the repetition of these loops at the beginning of the movie. It might feel too much like, oh, you're just trying to do the same thing, it's a retread, but there's a reason that it's so repetitive there are all these reflections because that is the point is we are just caught in our little loops we're on our hamster wheel and that is what keeps us from breaking out of the simulation and seeing real reality if you want to hear more about my personal experiences recognizing those loops and why I believe something's so outlandish I describe some of them in detail in episodes two three and four we discover that the opening scenes took place in a simulation created by Neo. He's now back in the Matrix. He's a little bit older. He doesn't remember everything from before. He's back to just thinking he's a normal dude. And he's a video game developer. And all the original three Matrix movies are his video game. What's interesting is he has sort of inadvertently put Morpheus, well, this program he created to be Morpheus, in a lot of the same hell that he was put in by himself having to live inside of the Matrix because he's putting this other program inside of a very limited and confusing simulation. And he does it really because he can't really imagine that his program is so sentient, is so real, has all of those feelings. And that's basically the same reason why the machines in the original Matrix movies had such an easy time doing that to humans. Humans' feelings weren't very real. And obviously Neo's not doing this on purpose. He does not remember that the Matrix and all of that is real. So he truly can't imagine just how sentient and real this program that he has created can be. But that's just kind of interesting is that always the people in a position of power don't really put any effort into thinking about what the experience of those they have control over is like and valuing it on a level of how it would feel if they themselves were experiencing it. So for the whole beginning part of the movie, Neo, who is living as Thomas Anderson again, 
is having a very hard time figuring out what is real. Logically, he knows what is supposed to be real and what he should believe and what other people around him believe and why, and yet there is this lingering feeling that it just doesn't fucking feel real. And there are these other things that he can't explain that do feel real. Like, why does he have this connection to this woman who we recognize as Trinity, who's just like Tiffany from the coffee shop? Why, why does he feel something? That can't be real, right? I definitely related a lot to this experience and to his feelings throughout this because of course reminded me of sort of my own reality bending experiences. When I started recognizing things that weren't supposed to exist, weren't supposed to be real, weren't supposed to happen, but I knew that they were happening, I always still knew what reality was supposed to be what everybody else thought was reality, what I had always believed was reality, and why, I wasn't having a hard time understanding that. I just didn't really believe it anymore. I think when you look at just how many people have spiritual or supernatural experiences, experiences that just don't conform to the rules that supposedly define this reality and are made to feel crazy or stupid for that. We live in an oppressively materialist culture. So then the movie gets unbelievably meta for a little bit and this part really surprised me because I just didn't know that they would go there or that they would be able to get away with that. His boss at the video game company straight up says, we are making a sequel to the trilogy. And Neo's like, whoa, what? It's like, yep, it's just for making money. And <laughs> honestly, my mouth was like hanging open a little bit. Cause it was like, how did they get away with saying this? They literally just said, we have to make this sequel. Oh yeah, and it was, and, we will make it with or without you. How did the studio allow such a diss against them to be in the movie? I don't know, but that rules. And, you know, some people think that this movie is just a cash grab and has nothing to say. And I feel like this scene does sort of lend that theory credibility. But then they go on to say, essentially, there is always more story to tell because we are always living stories. They don't end. Essentially, we are in these narrative loops. So the impression I got is that the idea to make a Matrix 4 was not thanks to the creators, but thanks to the studio. But then Lana Wachowski did end up finding more things she wanted to say. And as far as I know, Lily Wachowski only didn't work on this because she's working on C for Apple TV. I don't think there's like any kind of rift. I don't think, but you know, what do I know? So then there's this really interesting focus group scene talking about, you know, where the video game should go. And it certainly seems like a very obvious representation of just the process to make this movie. I'm definitely going to rewatch that scene because I feel like there's a lot in it that conveys the director's thoughts and intentions. And obviously that's me putting my interpretation on it, but it certainly feels that way. One comment within the focus group that really stuck out to me is they were talking about the violence and should there be violence in this story? And like, no, um, it doesn't need it. That's just there to like 
make exciting entertainment. That's not what it's actually about. It's actually philosophical. And I found that very interesting because that's sort of one of the things I realized when I was having my own surreal experiences is I thought, you know, every story like this, every story about this where it's good and evil or aliens coming to earth or whatever it's always violence that gets us out of it even just like all our hero stories are about violence and I don't think violence is actually the answer at all like not just for hippy dippy reasons but it just creates a cycle and can't fix things so I thought it was fun that there's a potential hint that that is how the director also feels but you know this is a movie so punch punch shoot shoot let's go there's some really interesting commentary on the mental health industry in this movie. Early on, there's a callback to the famous red pill or blue pill scene by showing that while in this extremely oppressive <laughs> matrix reality, Neo is taking antidepressants every day. And yes, they are blue. Now, I actually personally take antidepressants. I've taken them for the majority of the last like five years. And I don't think there should be any shame about that. And I have frequently found them unbelievably helpful. But, you know, I have also wondered about them because I don't <laughs> trust big pharma for sure. And especially when you've been on them for a long time, it's kind of hard to figure out all the ways in which they might be impacting you. And I do find at least that association in the film thought-provoking. So that brings us to the scenes with his therapist, Neil Patrick Harris, who I will inevitably call NPH because I have watched Harold and Kumar go to White Castle about 100 times. And these scenes are really interesting because we basically get to see what this entire narrative of, you know, the first three Matrix movies would look like if we tried to explain it away in the rules of this reality. He tried to step off a building and and that's regarded as a suicide attempt, not as, oh, maybe he can fly, and certainly not, oh, he can fly. Something I think is a very big problem in real life and happens in the movie is that mental illness can be used to delegitimize any look outside of the prescribed narrative. If you don't believe what you're supposed to believe or act how you're supposed to act, then you will be written off as crazy. And this is a really big problem and I experienced that myself this summer which like sure of course I knew that some of the things I was experiencing would be regarded by most people as crazy which is a reason even it took me a while to start this podcast because I didn't love the idea of that but when that was really damaging for me was when like my physical illness wasn't taken seriously because doctors just wrote me off as a crazy person. I mean, I remember when I finally got my first appointment with my new, like, general practitioner, my doctor, it took me a month to be able to see him, and this entire month, I was unbelievably sick, terrifyingly sick, sick just in ways that I had never been, and I couldn't explain things were happening to me that were very serious. And yeah, it wasn't great that like I hadn't had a doctor for my entire adult life. I hadn't been to the doctor in a long time. Like I didn't have these things in place. But then I tried to get them in place, and while he was booked out and I couldn't see him, I was trying very hard to get any kind of help. So I had appointments with several of the like lower level doctors in his office, the residents. And they were really unhelpful in ways that make me fantasize about suing them for malpractice. But 
I knew that that meant by the time I got to see my actual doctor, he was going to be biased against me. And when I finally got in to see my doctor, I remember he was visibly surprised that I wasn't crazy. I mean, he even really admitted it, that he thought I was going to be a completely different kind of person. He was really shocked when I came in and was just calmly talking to him about what I'd been going through and I had actual like physical things wrong with me because he was so sure he was going to be getting a crazy person. That is when our attitude towards mental health as a society is incredibly dangerous. That we just write off anyone who doesn't fit into a certain narrative as crazy. It is fascinating that we live in this super Christian country, but any of the like Christian saints, any of the fucking people in the Bible, if they live now and like said any of the shit that they said then, we would just say, oh, you're having a psychotic break, you have psychosis, you have schizophrenia. Like we would never consider the idea that like, oh, maybe this is just actually a prophet. We saw with the Britney Spears conservatorship case how dangerous it is to have a system where somebody can be declared mentally ill and legally incompetent without any real evidence besides just someone's opinion and then lose all of their rights. And hypothetically, if we do live in a very controlled matrix style simulation, then having that trump card in their back pocket of if somebody sees something they're not supposed to see, you can just label them as mentally unstable and maybe get them committed and just get nobody to listen to them anymore and get them to doubt themselves. Like That would be very helpful for maintaining order in that situation. Like obviously we know what movie we're watching and we've seen the first three. So we know that Neo is not delusional. He's just remembering things he went through. But if we didn't know that, how would you distinguish what is reality? How would you know what to believe in? We don't know at first if NPH is a well-intentioned, genuine, actual therapist who just happens to be gaslighting the shit out of Neo every time he thinks he's bringing him back to reality, or if he's an agent of the Matrix. But even if this is all well-intentioned and genuine, it is clearly the perfect prison for Neo with invisible bars. I don't think Neo ever truly thinks that he is delusional. He just never really seems to buy that, but he goes along with it because that's the responsible choice. That's what you're supposed to do. And honestly, this system is perfectly self-sustaining because you can control everything somebody does because they don't want to look crazy. If you're like Neo and you are being told you are mentally ill, but you don't think that you are, you are going to do everything you can to do what you think a sane person would do and avoid acting crazy. Now, I think that he knows denying that you are delusional is part of being delusional. If he says, I don't think that this all is in my head, then that is a sign that it is in his head. And so he can't actually admit, I don't think that is in my head because our society has created an incredibly strange situation where the purportedly sane thing to do is to allow yourself to be convinced that you are insane. And this accusation, as meaningless as it really is, clearly holds so much power that it takes Neo, who could fly, who was the one who had all of that ability, and turn him into a captive 
who doesn't believe in himself and cannot trust his own mind. How much is that fear of being crazy or being seen as crazy limiting all of us? And do you really think a weapon that powerful is being deployed all over the world on accident? It starts being clear that uh, NPH's therapist is pretty sus, and Neo notices this as well. It's just like, oh, you are always around when something weird is happening to me? Just like, every time I think I'm having an experience like the ones in my dreams and memories, it just so happens that, oh, I'm having a mental breakdown at your house. Like, I just came to your house. Like, I don't even like you that much, bro. This sounds suspicious. So he decides to go with the JV team of the Matrix escaping humans, you know, just the new class of the people that he used to be with. And then we finally kind of go into the second part of this movie and figure out what has actually been happening. I know anytime you add a bunch of new cast members to an already beloved creative work, like that's very controversial and probably a lot of people will hate on the new cast, but I really liked all of them. I thought they were all great, interesting, even Morpheus. Like that is so difficult to try and be Morpheus. And I remember watching the trailers like, oh, what? Yeah, I, I don't know about that. But honestly, I love that guy. I thought he did a great job with it. And all of their outfits are super cool. I would wear all of them. So the first third of the movie is all vibey and never really telling you what's real and what's not. This second third of the movie is just like explaining everything and a lot of exposition. I've seen some people complain about that, but I think it's just kind of necessary because you had a story that was wrapped up and now you have to explain why it's not wrapped up. And in some place, this is totally just a personal theory, but I felt like in some places, Lana Wachowski made it a little clunky on purpose just to like remind everyone that like I put an ending to this story and uh, I wouldn't have tried to like explain why this person is still alive when they shouldn't be alive, but I'm like, I have to do this. You know, it's like if you're invited to a party and I don't know, it's like your cousin's graduation party and you don't want to go. So then even if it ends up being a little fun, you don't really want people to see at first that you are having fun because you have to look a little bit cranky. That's how I, that's how I interpreted it, which I don't know. I thought that was funny. It honestly kind of seemed to me that in many ways, Lana only really focused on the things that she wanted to get across, the things that she had left to say, the points that she wanted to make, because yeah, it's tons of philosophizing all the way through. And most people won't be able to recognize that it's tons of commentary on like a lot of modern kind of conspiracy theories, you know, about simulation theory and the nature of reality. And then she showed clips from the first movie. Like, see, I already did this. I did this really well. Don't make me do this again. And uh, some of the fight scenes were not amazing. And the CGI kind of felt like it was exactly the same like quality as was possible 20 years ago. And that to me also kind of felt like she was saying, I did the fight scenes already. I gave you guys all that stuff so that you would get the points that we were getting across in these movies. I don't really want to do that again. She kind of even said it in that whole meta scene about the video game of like, this story is not about violence, but maybe you guys need that. So I'll give you some explosions 
to keep your attention. I gotta reiterate though, I don't know anything about her as a person, haven't even tried to read up on uh, if she has said anything about her intentions in making the movie. So those are just my feelings based off of what's in the movie itself. So then we really get into the meat of the new part of the philosophy, the part of this movie that is different from what the previous ones had to say, and we learn what happened after the events of the third movie. First of all, it's been 80 years, and nobody really knows why Neo and Trinity are still looking so good, which, sidebar, I know everyone's constantly talking about how, like, Keanu Reeves doesn't age, but Carrie Ann Moss, oh, really does not age, and is so beautiful. Oh my god. Okay. Anyways, I feel like there's a little bit of explanation that the original ending to the third movie, like, was awesome and could have stopped right there, which I do not begrudge <laughs> her for doing, and says basically, um, yeah, they definitely did actually die, and they changed everything, and things were way better after that. Although it initially seems that nothing has changed, nothing has gotten better, in fact, there is no longer a war between machines and humans, because some of the machines, which now like to be called synth something, and I really wish that I'd figured out what that was, they saw what Trinity and Neo did and were like, OMG, uh, wow, we should not be oppressing them the way we are, that's bad. And they switched sides, and then there's machine on machine war, and now there's a whole new city that uh, some good machines and humans built together. So now it's basically a war between those who desire to control everyone and those who do not want that. I really like this plot development for a couple of reasons. First of all, I personally just don't really believe in like pure good, pure evil, and so that doesn't make a lot of sense to me. But also, I have just always been very pro-robot. Can't necessarily explain that, but I just like them, and I don't think that humans are better just because we're made out of meat. Turns out Niobe is still alive, but she's really old and just acting like old people always do, which is just like say no to everything. But she explains what happened to Zion, and that part I did think was really cool. She says that Zion was a world stuck in war, stuck in this binary thinking of it has to be us or them. And she describes it as a matrix of their own. And I really like that because like the loops that we were talking about earlier, I see those as, yeah, things that you can just experience in your life right here. It doesn't really necessarily matter if it's like, did a simulation create that loop or did you just create it? Because the effect is the same. And there really was peace for a while, but then there will always be just opportunistic and selfish actors in the world. And one reason why they were able to regain power is because Morpheus believed so much in the one that he thought what Neo had done could never be undone. And I thought that was an interesting point too, and sort of even an added justification for like why we're making another movie. Because maybe you have to save the world over and over again. Like it never is just saved. And maybe that's why we feel like, oh, why do I have to learn this lesson over and over, do this over and over? But it's just because that is the nature of things. Nothing is permanent. You fix something, you have to fix it again later. Maybe the world has been saved many, many times by many, many people and it will continue to need that. 
it was cool to see the new city that they had built together. And she makes the point that Zion never could have done this because we couldn't have done it without them. You know, these synthetic intelligences. I don't really know what the synths get out of their interactions with humans, but I guess we're supposed to just like ourselves enough as humans to assume that we have an inherent value to them, I guess. The messed up part though is there are still humans in pods being used as fucking batteries for these unfriendly machines, and Niobe is not doing shit to help them. She is concerned about keeping her little town safe, and you do really have to wonder, like, how? How would you do that? How do you just preserve your peace knowing that other people still are not free? Like, it's been 80 years. You haven't gone on any fucking rescue missions. You know, in the immortal words of Fannie Lou Hamer, nobody's free until we're all free. And then she tries to put Neo in jail, which obviously isn't going to work, and so the other people break him out of jail, and then they go on a mission. And this is actually the only part of the movie that I really just didn't like uh and i just i don't know my mind was wandering couldn't pay very good attention the merovingian was back it was just like hey everyone's back i don't know if it was like it's in their contract or hey now you know what happened to them so you don't have to make me do another movie i don't know like i think the part that annoyed me the most is the merovingian coming back because just like was that a character anybody enjoyed or cared about was anyone like ugh my favorite part of the Matrix sequels is that French guy. And then he looked ridiculous. What was he wearing? I don't buy it. So who was that for? I don't, honestly, I don't think I even paid attention to like the things they were saying during that part. Sorry. It's okay though, because I think that whole thing was just setting up an opportunity for NPH to come back and for us to find out that he is the architect of this new version of the Matrix. And then I really enjoy this scene. And this is actually like the scene where I started taking just an immense amount of notes because if you think at all that the Matrix movies might contain hidden truths about reality, this is the mother load for this particular film. First, they get all the necessary explaining out of the way, which, you know, is nice. You got to do that. Basically, Neo and Trinity did, yes, die, and then NPH rebuilt them, and it took a while, but I guess, you know, machines are good at medicine, and, but he couldn't access, I think I might have even laughed at the line, I was like, I thought you would be happy to be alive again, but you were not, um, which was great. And then for like years, he tried to access Neo's source code and couldn't until he finally realized, oh, he needs Trinity. His love for Trinity is his superpower slash he is very codependent, depending on how you look at it. But then we finally get to the good stuff. NPH explains how his new version of the Matrix works and how he keeps people in it without any resistance. And this is, in my opinion, absolutely a description of the reality that we currently live in and how we are kept here. At the beginning of this episode, I said that I felt like if it actually was true that there was some kind of experience that I had and 
the Wachowskis had that was seeing the same piece of reality in some way, then this movie would feature things that I came across this year. And this is exactly what I was talking about. The reality described in this scene perfectly fits the conclusions that I came to this year about the reality that we actually live in. This is exactly the shit that made me start this podcast that I have already been talking about on this podcast. It's the shit I read about in weird little subreddits. And it has a couple of answers to questions that I didn't have answers to. And obviously, I don't know if these are the answers, but I'm definitely gonna think about them. So this version of The Matrix is similar to past versions in that it too is an energy farm of human power. Humans are in nasty, gooey pods living pretend lives in their minds. By the way, I apologize for the occasional background noise. That is my dogs. They're just done being quiet and patient. I've been podcasting for too long, so I can't really blame them. Anyways, what makes this version of The Matrix different is that finally this architect has found the key to zero human resistance. Nobody has tried to break out of this simulation. He says the key is quietly yearning for what you don't have while dreading losing what you do. For 99.9% .9 of your race, that's the definition of reality desire and fear. And there's a weird plot element that they use to explain like why Neo and Trinity would still be in the pods because like, I don't know, they just have to explain it some way. So it's like, oh, the matrix works perfectly when you two are plugged into it because you want each other so bad and can't have each other. And I, I don't know how I feel about that. But I think in general, as an idea, it's very insightful. The architect goes on to explain that really, he just had to find the right narratives. Story is what matters to humans. He says, facts don't actually matter to you guys at all. It's just feelings and fictions. That's what matter. And that's very useful for the architect because he says feelings are so much easier to manipulate than facts. This is exactly what I noticed about the nature of this reality that made me realize that it wasn't real, that there were these trauma loops we were caught in and they keep you in by using your feelings. And clearly the feelings are real. So it's like, I'm not going to say, oh, that trauma isn't real or that story isn't real because the experience of it absolutely is real. And clearly it is so painful that it works to keep all of us contained. These stories of betrayal and not being enough and wanting to be loved and just resentment and pain and wanting to get back at people. And this is exactly what I talked about in episode four. And I have been phrasing it as mind parasites, but you can also phrase it as it's the fucking new version of the matrix. I thought it was really interesting when the architect says, the worse we treat you, the more we manipulate you, the more energy you produce. Cause that is exactly prison planet theory, specifically the theory that this reality is a simulation run by archons, which are these other dimensional beings, which feed off of our negative feelings. And so they cause us stress and pain and fear because that's what feeds them. 
Now, I didn't know about any of this when I started realizing that I believed we lived in a simulation that was essentially a prison. I didn't know anyone else believed this. So like, I didn't get these ideas from other people. And that's why they are so interesting to me and intriguing and why I can't let them go is because I started to see evidence of something so crazy, outlandish, unreal. I couldn't believe that I was starting to believe it. And then to find other people actually have been seeing the same things, believe the same things, that has been fascinating for me. But I feel like a a big difference between me and a lot of people who believe these things is I don't claim to like have all the answers and most people do. Like if you go in the Prison Planet subreddit, people are just issuing their manifesto. This is exactly how the universe works and this is how the archons are and when you die, you know, turn left at the white light so you don't go into it and it's like, all right, that's a lot of confidence and I'm sure that a few things you said are true. And it is generally the belief that the reason they cause us fear and pain and stress is because those are the emotions they feed off of. And that is something I'd personally been a little skeptical of just because in my own personal experience of realizing that I had some kind of parasite that was <laughs> taking a lot of my like energy and ability to think and just my freaking life <laughs> force, I felt like yeah, they're taking all the good stuff. They're taking the stuff of life, you know, the adrenaline, the epinephrine, the serotonin, the dopamine, and they're just leaving me with the scraps. They're leaving me with the cortisol and, you know, they're leaving me with the stress hormones. And that's why something like depression or anxiety isn't tied to like, oh, you have so many fear and stress hormones that your dopamine and serotonin aren't enough. A lot of times, like, you know, you actually have a deficiency of dopamine and serotonin. But, you know, even as I'm saying this, I take it back because it is definitely more complicated than that. And there are many, many causes for depression. That's just kind of how it has made sense to me in my own body and mind. But this movie uh, says, nope. We just really genuinely love when you're in pain because you emit more energy that way. So I will consider that. The other idea that I saw as a potential answer for one of my questions about this stuff is when he talks about nightmares. He says, do you ever wonder, the architect says this to Neo, do you ever wonder why your brain tortures you? Why do you have nightmares? Why would your brain do that to you? And then he says, nightmares are just us maximizing your output. Stressed out and in fear and pain all day long and do it all night too. And I thought that was very interesting because that means it's not actually your own brain torturing you. And that has been sort of my staunch opinion this year is that this narrative that we are responsible for our self-doubt and anxiety and like, I, I don't believe that. I think those are narratives placed into our brains to trap us and torture us and limit us. And the best way to keep that going is to convince us that they are our thoughts. And thus, 
it is our fault that we torture ourselves. But like, it doesn't make any sense. Why do we, why would we torture ourselves? I don't hate myself. So I don't think I'm creating those thoughts when they come up, which they don't very often anymore. I find this idea that the things we desire are just out of reach really interesting. And if we say hypothetically, okay, this is true, this is how the world works, then I think it explains a lot of like mindset and manifesting kind of stuff, which in this reality, your greatest desires are just a couple steps away from you. They have to be within your reach for them to really torture you. But that means then it's only your mindset that is keeping you from those things. You are actually only a couple of steps away from your greatest desires. Those things actually are in reach. And so if we change our mindset that way and say that what we want is available to us, it is ours, we are worthy of that, that is the life we are here to live, then suddenly we can achieve those things. This version of the matrix relies on the human tendency to not let ourselves have the lives that we want and be the people that we want to be. And I don't know if this is some kind of innate human thing or if this is an influence from you know, a parasite or something, or if this is just a societal, cultural, ingrained belief. But we tend to believe that the story we like least, the one that is not as good for us, is the most probable, is the most likely and realistic. And so we have to pick that. But this isn't even true. Like, that's not a fact. There is actually nothing to really back that up. Because a lot of the time, two possibilities are equally probable. We don't know which one is true. And it doesn't make sense to assume that the worst outcome is probably the real one. It's a fucking 50-50 shot. It doesn't make any sense for us to choose the reality that is worse for us. There's an amazing exploration of this theme in the first episode of Electric Dreams. It's on Amazon Prime sci-fi anthology show. This episode stars Anna Paquin, and I won't tell you anything about it because you really should watch it. I remember feeling this way, just like small random ways. Like I always liked tattoos, thought they were cool, but I just thought I'm not the kind of person who can get a tattoo, like just not me. Now I wish I was that person, but I'm not. And then one time this girl with like two full sleeves just said, if you like the look of tattoos, then you are the kind of person who can get tattoos. Like that's literally all it takes. You don't have to be a specific kind of person. You already are that kind of person just because you like them. Like most people don't want a sleeve at all. That's not something they even find like aesthetically pleasing. So they're the people that it's not for them. You like it. So it is for you. And I was like, oh, wow. And uh, about four years later, I got a giant leg tattoo. It's not giant, but it was big for uh, a beginner. 
Something else I really liked about this part is when the architect is talking about 99.9% .9 of your race, he's not talking about people who aren't Neo and Trinity. He's talking about them too. They are part of that 99.9%. .9 They're normal. They're not special. And one of the free humans is looking at Trinity's code and says, she might not be able to do this. You know, she's coded blue pill all the way. And Neo says, well, what did my code look like? And she said, same. Yeah. So the spark inside of them is imperceptible. They're not chosen ones. They chose themselves. Like an important message that I think that sends is that there are no NPCs. Now, NPC stands for non-player character. It's like the person in Grand Theft Auto who you just run over. And it's become pretty popular among like people who think they're enlightened to call other people NPCs. And this just really bugs me because then I know they've actually not gone and talked to those people about their experiences because actually nobody is an NPC and you look like an NPC to other people. So Neo and Trinity, they are NPCs. They are indistinguishable from all of the people around them. And yet they're not NPCs, they're Neo and Trinity. So don't look at anyone that way. No one, no one is empty. Everyone is a person and you can't tell what is inside a person from the outside. I truly think if you still feel a need to see other people that way, because you feel a need to be better than other people, then you are really um, not nearly as enlightened as you think you are. So now it's all about choice. How do you choose what reality to believe in? How do you choose who to believe, yourself or everyone else? How do you figure out when it's time to stop acting like it's business as usual? When is it time to do something that everyone around you will think is crazy? And this reality that you and I live in, whether it's real, whatever that means, or a simulation, we are definitely taught that the right thing to do is to trust others and not ourselves. We are not supposed to follow our intuition or even believe that intuition is real. In real life, this decision that Neo and Trinity have to make, you are always supposed to decide that you're not, you know, the one who's saving the world and you should not trust your inner feeling that you actually are on a giant mission. And you should just accept that you are living in the reality that everyone else is telling you that you are, even if it feels false to you. More and more who are being taught that not only are you not allowed to know your own mind or your own health, but like that you're not able to. When I was sick and I would tell doctors like what I felt, they kept asking me like, well, how do you know that? Like my kidney hurts. Well, what makes you think that? Um, I can feel it. Like, I guess not everyone can feel that, but I can. Like, yeah, I know I can't see my kidney, but you know your toe hurts without having to look at your toe. I just know that it hurts. Or like, if I know I have an infection, I know I have an infection. To me, it is completely ridiculous that a human being should not be able to know when they have an infection. Yes, you should be able to know. You might need a doctor to tell you what kind but you should be able to know that for yourself. But this movie says that it's brave to believe yourself. Not that it's crazy or irrational, but it's brave to look inside yourself and decide, I am going to believe myself. I'm gonna follow this thing that I feel in the depths of my soul to be true, even if nobody else agrees. In our reality, to feel that you have 
a connection to some lady at the coffee shop that you've barely ever talked to and feel that that is like some deep love, like everyone, myself included, would discourage you from that. (laughs) And usually you won't have a deep connection with the woman at the coffee shop. And that's not true until the one case where it is. And I guess it's just on us to know the difference. Neo's love for Trinity, it is his superpower. It is the thing that helps him wake up and see the reality he is actually living in, to see past the lies, to see who he really is, to regain his talents and abilities. And when he really leans into that and trusts that love, he is living in a reality in which it doesn't exist. They've never been Trinity and Neo in that reality. She's been Tiffany. But it is so strong that it transcends whatever reality they are currently in. I have kind of felt that before in my life. You know when you meet someone, you just have one of those crazy connections and you like are in love with each other way more quickly than makes any sense. But you just don't have like compatible lives. You can't really just make it work in the real world. Sometimes I think, well, that's somebody that you've loved in another life, in another dimension, in another reality, and you're not meant to be with them in this one. But that doesn't make this a failure. Doesn't even mean they can't be your soulmate. Just not in this life. One thing characters keep saying about choice is when they're presented with a certain choice, like, well, is this even a choice? Because the answer is clear. It's not truly a choice for them, either because one of the outcomes is intolerable, or deep down you know that you already made that choice a really long time ago. You made that choice just by being the kind of person that you are. You made that choice when you were born. So like, stop pretending that maybe you're going to do the other thing and, you know, just do the thing you already know you're going to do. So finally it's time to rescue Trinity, who doesn't even know that she is Trinity. So she's going to have like two seconds to decide to completely switch her perception of reality and abandon her husband and children. And it's, it's going to be a lot. But they say freeing an uncertain mind will almost certainly kill her. So it has to be her choice. And now Neo's entire future, everybody's entire future, relies on Trinity's choice. And there's nothing anyone else can do to change that. And I do think that's really true in general, just of introducing people to new ideas, especially ideas that conflict with their previous concepts of reality. You cannot push it on someone. You cannot make somebody ready for that information or have any desire for it. And sometimes that's a helpful thing to remember. Because like, if you feel like, oh, I'm learning all of these things about the world, you want to share them with other people. And sometimes you can feel like you need to get other people to understand these things, but that's actually not up to you. That's not your job. Then the big moment, Tiffany, do you want to be Trinity again? She's like, honestly, mm, no, I'm just not that person, sorry. And Neo's like, okay. And I really got to respect how quickly and completely he just accepted that because I would have had a hard time. Like, I know that that had to be her choice, but I probably would have been like, 
trying to explain it a little more. Like, come on. So very mature of him. But then her bitch ass Chad husband fails to see her. You know, she can tell, you don't know me at all. And that is intolerable to her. And finally, she decides to let herself choose the reality she's not supposed to choose. To let herself be the person she feels like she is or could be deep down. But she knows you're not supposed to feel that way. Like earlier in the movie, she says that she mentioned to her husband that she thought this character Trinity in the game was like her. And he laughed. Because you're not supposed to think that you're badass and sexy and powerful. You're definitely not supposed to think that you might have some important role to play in the world. Or even that just you have a love that is so real and intense. It lasts forever in any reality. Like who do you think you are? We're trained to only allow ourselves to be smaller versions of who we truly are and could be in favor of like not hurting the feelings of hypothetical people who are not even here. Like who are we doing that for? So she makes the choice to be her full self in a way she hadn't even ever done before. And suddenly she has the power of the one. Okay, I am wrapping this up while hiding in my closet because my dogs literally will not stop barking. Anyways, let's skip to the very end. Neo and Trinity go see the architect and taunt him. It appears uh, within a simulation they have built for him. You know, tables have turned. Now you're in a fancy virtual prison. And then what's interesting is whereas in the previous movies, the goal was to get out of the Matrix. Now they're just going to go and make the Matrix better. Because the Matrix is home for a lot of people. <laughs> Do they necessarily want to walk around in this scorched planet? Maybe not. And a recurring theme of this movie is what is real anyways? What is reality? Not only how would you know, but sometimes why would it matter? We get to see the program that is Morpheus come into our 3D world by using a complicated system of magnets and we get uh, the return of Sati, who was the little girl program, love child of two other programs in the previous movie. And she can participate in our world, like, by appearing as a hologram. But that's not real for her. That's not real for him. Like, this is as artificial an existence for them as it is for us to just have our consciousness in their digital world. So what is real? Anyways, what counts? Maybe it doesn't even matter if we live in a simulation as long as we make this simulation an enjoyable life where we get to be ourselves and make our own choices. Thank you so much for listening to this episode. If you're new to the podcast, please subscribe. I would appreciate it. If you're on iTunes, you can leave a five-star review. You know, maybe say a few words in a review like, I like it, you know. Honestly, I would be thrilled with that. I'd love to hear your thoughts on the movie. And if there are other movies you would like me to explore in an episode like this, let me know. You can find me on Twitter, Instagram, and TikTok at Erica Heidewald. You can email me at delphiapothecary at gmail.com. 
And best of all, you can support this podcast on my Patreon, patreon.com slash Erica Heidewald. You get early access to every single podcast episode, bonus stuff, and you just help me like live and pay my rent and eat. And that's so nice of you. Thank you. Bye.